Welcome to Below the Line, where we talk about working in Hollywood from the crew perspective. My name is Skid. I'm a former assistant director and your host. Our Oscar series highlighting the technical categories continues, and today is episode five of ten. We're talking about the Academy Award nominees for Best Animated Feature, and I'm happy to welcome back my guest from last year. First, Kent Secchi. You're a 20-year Hollywood veteran, and your animated credits include Megamind, The Boss Baby, and the upcoming Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Mutant Mayhem, which will be out this August. Nice to see you again. It's good to be here. Also returning, Camilla Gonza. You've been working on animated films for more than 20 years yourself, with credits including The Incredibles, The Secret of Kells, and going back to your start in the industry, The Iron Giant. Welcome back to Below the Line. Thanks for having me back. I'm excited to have you both here. Listeners, if you want to learn more about Kent and Kamel, please look them up on the Internet Movie Database. Below the Line has its own page on IMDb, so it's easy to start on a specific episode and simply click through to see the film credits of my guests. The five animated films recognized by the Academy this year are Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio, Marcel the Shell with Shoes On, Puss in Boots, The Last Wish, The Sea Beast, and Turning Red. We're going to discuss them in that order, and spoilers are possible, so consider this a warning. Additionally, I'm offering my apologies in advance in case I mispronounce the names of any nominees. First up, Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio, and the credited team is Guillermo del Toro, Mark Gustafson, Gary Ungar, and Alex Bulkley. Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio, it is the front runner, right? Like, it won the Golden Globe. I loved it. I absolutely adore Guillermo del Toro's storytelling. The production design, the fact that it's stop motion, every single frame is so beautiful of this film that it really won me over. I know it was his passion project. I think they announced that it was in development in 2008, which is almost as long as I've known Kent, <laughs> by the way. Uh, That's old, man. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah, it was a while ago. But. You know, it, it sounds like, it, you know, Guillermo del Toro really struggled to bring this film to life. And I know it was a very personal story for him. And so I think you can just feel it. I love the production design. I loved the the darkness of it, the death elements uh, in the kind of other world. And I thought Shadow Machine, uh, the studio that uh, did most of the stop motion animation, did a fantastic job. What did you think, Kent? I loved it. I was so I was blown away by this film. And what a lot of people don't realize is that Guillermo del Toro is a huge animation fan. And it takes an animation fan to make an animated film, I think, in a lot of ways because of the process is so time intensive. Camille and I worked together at DreamWorks, and there was a time in which Guillermo del Toro came to the studio to advise on several pictures. And it was a huge thrill to have someone of his stature really take an interest in the animation field. And when you see what he has made using the, the medium of animation, it really is amazing. And the fortitude it takes to make an animated film, the attention to detail and the perseverance, a lot of people don't realize how long these things take to make. And even conceptually, this film, being so dark and being very Guillermo del Toro in the way of Pan's Labyrinth, of Shape of Water, of all of his sort of tight, his natural taste. To get this made was an incredible journey. He has this quote, I think it was like, I would come in and I would say, it's about death and life and the rise of Mussolini and they would validate my parking and send me on my way, you know? And he went to almost <laughs> every major studio to try to get this made. And I think in many ways, I would like a tip of the hat to Netflix for agreeing to make this. And this is a place where you really see the advantage of all these streaming services trying to get into the game of animation because they're willing to take these risks. I mean, Wolf Walker from Apple, which was, again, some people that Camille worked with. Cartoon Saloon. Secret of Kells gets these movies made, helps to get fund and get these movies made. This is no exception. Even though it's a big name like Guillermo del Toro as a passion project, it really is it took a thousand days to shoot it that's yeah. extraordinary when you think about anyone that works in the industry has worked on a live action set that there's no shoots that are thousand day shoots you know that's a lot of photography that's happening across a long period of time and you it's a very labor intensive process and you have to be really into it and i like to look at this movie and draw a parallel to pan's labyrinth in like there's thematically when i saw pan's labyrinth you sort of saw, you know, Guillermo del Toro is almost a, a modern Luis Buñuel and sort of the framing of a, of a fantastical story 
in fascist Spain. And this is the framing of a fantastical story in fascist Italy. And you really see this sort of political discussion happening sort of behind the scenes of this movie and the idea of conformism and 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 not and sort of rebelling against it. This movie is very much a movie about rebellion. I think the character of Pinocchio and I've had debates with of some of my compatriots about this. Uh, some people have found him annoying because he is so rebellious. But I think that was thematically something that Guillermo del Toro really wanted to talk about in this film. And it's really evident in the DNA of it, the idea of disobedience as a virtue. Mm-hmm. I, I would describe Guillermo del Toro as a rebellious person. And I think his film embodies very much his persona of that. And I, I really enjoyed it. The fact that co-writer is Patrick McHale, who, who wrote on... Adventure Time adds a whimsy to it that is only enhanced by the stop motion. And it's really amazing, the craftsmanship. I just look at this film and the, the photography is beautiful, is absolutely stunning. It's something that you don't really talk about a lot in, in anime films. Oh, the cinematography. The cinematography in this film is extraordinary. And it just adds to the mystique of the miniatures. It really does. Mm-hmm. It's really enhances it in a lot of ways. I saw Guillermo del Toro speak about uh, the making of Pinocchio at the NFC Film Festival last year. And he previewed a couple of scenes. And one of the ones that he previewed was the scene where Geppetto is kind of drunk and stumbling around. And he talked about how he really wanted to show the imperfections of these characters in the animation. And it's so different than like when you look at CG animation and how perfect it can look the nuances and subtleties of the stop motion animation, those little real life things that people do are there like creaky knees and rubbing his, his brow. And just, you can tell he's in pain and you can do that in CG, but for some reason there is such a heaviness in stop motion that, that kind of comes across those characters. And that's something that he had mentioned really wanting to capture. And so when I watched it, that's really what I was looking for initially is just like, what are all those little moments that are Guillermo del Toro, you know, making this, this animated film. And I just, I love it. And, and yes, like we were so lucky to work with him at DreamWorks when he came in as a consultant and the fact that he has been so close to animation for so long and is such a champion of animation and, you know, being that vocal about animation is cinema. You can tell any kind of story. It's not a genre. He's one of our biggest cheerleaders. And I just, I can't thank him enough because it's true. You can tell any kind of story with animation. Yeah. He really is somebody that bridges that live action to animation gap. There's a very few, there's only a handful of directors who've done both successfully. And he is definitely one of them. And we've sort of been, those of us in the animation community who know he's a fan, this is what we've been waiting for is to see something that he's hand created. And it has the imprint of him all over this. He talked about in interviews how much he wanted the animators who came from all different parts of the country, of the world to make this movie. He really wanted to empower them as actors. And that's something that in the animation community we talk about a lot is how character animation is acting. And I think the physicality of the stop motion, which is something Camille's really talked about here and I think beautifully, is imparted onto these characters. And it's it's so amazing to watch. And when you see if you have any chance to hear Gamble talk talk about anything, you should do it. Because he is a dynamic speaker. He is incredibly engaging and charismatic. And when he talks about animation, it, it really, you fall in love with it again. And I think that is something that is evident in every frame of this film. And I've heard rumblings around the, the animation community, especially my friends at DreamWorks, who will talk about their film, Puss in Boots Later, about how, oh, well, that, that's, you know, that's not my, my kids didn't like it as much as our film or these other things. But like, really, it is pushing to me the medium of animation. It is something that's like saying, hey, we can be different. And it can have a larger or a different kind of audience, you know, it maybe it isn't for kids, but like it has elements of it that any kid can relate to. And it, and it has something that adults can look at and sort of tack onto. And the other thing about it is look at the voice cast on this and how well they read their parts. It's really amazing. The voice of Geppetto is a longtime actor that Guillermo had worked with before and, and Ron Perlman's in this. And like, there's just really a wealth of, of talent oozing out of this. I particularly love the scenes in which uh, Pinocchio dies and goes to this oh, yeah. other world. Those those scenes are beautiful, just stunning. That creature design was oh. absolutely incredible. 
Right. Absolutely. Just really amazing to watch. And then even though the, if you get a chance, look at the behind scenes, how large, like in order to make Jiminy Cricket work, like this is giant head. Like you, there's photos I've seen of like Guillermo Toro next to the head. And it's like, it's like bigger than him, you know, in order to make. And so you use the word miniature, but it's not really that miniature at all. Sometimes it's a maximature, right? So it's crazy. But it's really a, a lovely movie. And I was absolutely enthralled by it when I watched it. And I'm happy for Guillermo to have this opportunity and to get the recognition that I think this film so richly deserves. And also for, for Netflix. I think Klaus was one of the first films that they did that was nominated for an Oscar. I loved Klaus. And to have another one here with this film, I think they have a real shot at winning an Oscar with this film. And deservedly so. I think this film is amazing and beautiful. And it has something to say. I mean, Pinocchio is a well-known story, and yet it has something to say. And I think that's really a fascinating thing that he was able to take it and sort of reimagine it in a way that isn't derivative of itself. And I thought that was really great. The other thing I really loved about this film that I took away was the focus of Pinocchio really being able to be a child and Geppetto learning how to be a father instead of Pinocchio learning to be a real boy. Like he was always a boy. You know, kids are troublemakers. They get into mischief. But Geppetto really, he had the character arc of kind of coming into fatherhood. Actually, it's fascinating you should say that. It's true. Like he struggles with being a parent. He gets frustrated, you know, and it's almost his story and his tragic backstory with Carl, his boy, Carlo, who passes away and his idea that he, maybe he can replace him, but then realizes it's not the same. I think that there's some real adult themes in this film that are of loss, of loss that are really important, that really work. And even the idea that Pinocchio outlasts them all, like that is the fascinating conundrum for him in this film that I think is unresolved in a, in a good way. There are no easy answers in this film. That's beautiful. I want to step back and ask you both a question that I think is relevant to this film and to our next entry. Now, best animated feature is sort of like best picture for animated films. And so all these different elements of story and how it comes together all matter as far as the, the film that gets selected. But from a technical perspective, do you have any difficulty comparing the stop motion animated films versus the computer generated or CGI animated films in the same category like this. It's interesting that you should ask that because I was thinking about that before uh, we spoke today about Marcel Pichel with shoes on uh, and just how it's live action and stop motion. And that's nominated for best animated feature. But then I was thinking about Avatar and then I was having this philosophical argument with myself about what what is animation <laughs> what is animation what, what about that? the lion king the john favreau <laughs> lion king all of that was animated or the jungle book where only the boy was live action and i don't know why this voice i don't know where this voice came. i don't know i don't know <laughs> but everything is animated <laughs> i think it is challenging i actually i do in the same way last week chris batty and i talked about visual effects and the and the difference between a supporting visual effects film and a, and a visual effects driven film it's a little bit apples and oranges. I think the artistry, the artistry of doing something frame by frame, whether it's on a computer or it's by hand, that is constant. And because I work in a computer all day, I feel more of an appreciation, I think, for the stop motion and the labor it takes to make that kind of effort. And also the decision making, how much more challenging it is to go back and revise it after you've got it in the can even a day of shooting, like it, you have to go back and redo it. Even though we redo stuff all the time in, anim in CG animation, there's just something, it just feels more difficult to me. And so I guess I have a lot of appreciation for stop motion films because of that. And maybe I waited a little bit more, but it's charming. There's something undeniably charming. And I think maybe it's the kid and everyone that feels that you can reach out and touch it that makes it different than an SCG film. I, I think that it's it is challenging to compare, even within the industry itself, to like do it. And I think Camille is also correct that like Avatar is mostly animated. So it's not nominated, obviously, but like would that put it in technically in the category? Just like The Lion King is mostly animated, why wasn't that in Best Animated Feature? You sort of don't know the answer to that question. It's not something that's very clear anymore. And I know there was a big push to have Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio, you know, considered for Best Picture as well. So. It is a great debate to have. And it's actually, I like doing this podcast because we talk about all these different kinds of movies. And it's, and I think they're each great. 
in their own way. And that's what's mm-hmm. fascinating about the medium. Like it's something that can can sort of span multiple types of animation. Absolutely. Well, this issue is also relevant with our next film, Our Sell the Shell with Shoes On. Credited team is Dean Fleischer Camp, Elizabeth Holm, Andrew Goldman, Caroline Kaplan, and Paul Meezy. I absolutely loved Marcel the Shell. Like it was for me one of my favorite films of last year. And it actually one of the more surprising movies I watched. I think that the word I would use to describe it whimsical. It has this charm for me that is fascinating. I, I watched this with my wife, who's and ironically, I work in the animation industry. My wife is not an animation fan. I'm always curious what she thinks of movies, and she loved this movie. She actually recommended this to all her friends to go see this film. Uh, I just thought that was interesting that it could transcend even a skeptic of animation. I think it's a very meta movie, and if if you know anything about the story of how this was made, I think that there's something very interesting about how this came about. So this is really the brainchild of the actress Jenny Slate, who's in a lot of movies. If you don't know who she is, Once you see her, you'd recognize her. She's the voice of Marcel. And she had conceived this, I believe, with Dean uh, Fleischer-Camp. They went to a wedding and with a bunch of friends. And, you know, when you're young and you can't afford hotels, you crash in the same hotel together. And, like, they were all on top of each other. And that's when she invented this character of Marcel, the shell. And it was, like, literally a character with a googly eye. And she made up this sort of small voice for it. And they came up with these little small documentaries that they put on YouTube and they became very popular. And that ended up, you know, causing there to be some excitement about making a feature out of it. And so when you watch the movie, it's literally that story of like, Oh, this filmmaker Dean, who's Dean Fleischer camp goes lives in his house, like after breaking up with his girlfriend. And I do think that Dean and if I'm not mistaken, and Jenny Slate were together. and They were married. Yeah, when they started, they got divorced and still made the movie, I think. I don't think yeah. they're together now. No, no, they're not. So, like, it's kind of this weird – that's why I call it a meta movie, right? So, in the movie, Dean goes to live in this Airbnb, I think it is, discovers Marcel and starts filming Marcel and posting him on YouTube. And that causes a buzz and Marcel becomes a YouTube sensation. And that leads to like them getting on 60 Minutes and meeting Marcel and, <laughs> and Isabella Rossellini's hero. Leslie Stahl. Leslie Stahl, who's now in the movie, who helps them find. Like it's it's just crazy. I haven't seen a meta movie like this since that one about Mr. Brainwash, the documentary exit through the back of the gift shop. It's similar to me in that way of like, it sort of knows itself and is a bit of a wink and a nod to itself. I didn't know any of that until after I saw the film. And so it was fascinating on many different levels, on a subtext level. Like we always talk about artists working out their issues in the medium of whatever it is with the sculpture, painting, photography, that kind of thing. And I, it seems like they're working out some things while making this movie, which is part of the charm for me about the film is it felt kind of in this really interesting documentary style that is unusual for animation. From a technical standpoint, they were writing it and recording the audio along the way and revising it. So there was like this improvisation, but yet written style. Then they shot the footage, the live action footage, without obviously Marcel in it. They maybe they put a, a dummy Marcel just for like to get the light values. And then they had to go back and camera track all of the live action photography that they cut in and then reshoot just the stop motion part, match the lighting and then do the composite. So from a technical standpoint, this is probably one of the more technically difficult movies that were made just because it Mm -hmm. combines two live action shoots. It has the writing improvisation style. It has the rewriting and the constant changing of the story. The legendary Chodo brothers did the character animation. So there's a lot in this film that I find really amazing in that it got made in the manner that it did it, it, it took a long time to get made it's another one it took seven years you know so like and again like the sticking to it like sticking to getting this thing made like that's the kind of fortitude it takes to make some an animated film sometimes it's fascinating to me this one for me it took me a little while to watch it i had no idea about the shorts so i i watched it after watching the movie um it's funny because it really is you know, actually some of the lines from the original short from 2010 are in the film and it's that little character. So I thought it was really, you know, poignant and emotional. There are so many little whimsical, 
thoughts that Marcel has that, that really resonate with anybody who's gone through a loss or um, you, there's this mystery of the family being gone and you don't really know what happened. You know, you discover that uh, as the film goes on and you really get close to this little shell wearing shoes with a googly eye with a googly eye and so the googly eye this year is big googly eye this had a year in cinema let's just face it but it's you know it's it it is this you know really beautiful film and you know isabella rossellini is fantastic as grandmother connie yes grandmother connie isabella rossellini that's crazy they got her to be in this movie could you imagine pitching this movie to her yeah you're gonna be a show (laughs) what apparently she was great with the improv and was just like had a lot of questions but in a good way about the character and what's going on and i read an interview with the filmmaker that they loved working with isabella rosalina and how great she was i imagine and also leslie Stahl. you know i mean i feel like any film that brings in 60 minutes is wow okay by me um but <laughs> but jenny slate like that voice you know, because she also does voices. She was in Bob's Burgers. Yep. So she also was in Bob's Burgers, the movie this year, which was animated. Big Mouth, I think she does a voice or two. And then Secret Life of Pets. So, you know, she has, she's she been around in, in live action and animation for, mm. for quite some time. But it, yeah, this one, it's just, it's a beautiful film. It surprised me. I'm not sure I would have caught it with my normal viewing habits, but I had the opportunity to interview the production designer, Liz Tunkel, for the podcast last season. So I had a chance to go to a screening. And so sitting there in the theater and watching it, it just surprised me how they managed to be sentimental, but never kind of be modeling to always undercut it with just the right amount of humor um, for me as far as maintaining that balance. And I think both this and with Pinocchio, we talked about before, you can see the advantage of, I think, some of these long production schedules in really working to get the story you want on screen. You know, we're going to be very deliberate about what the story is and what it says. And I think that that pays off for both of these films. You know, it's the animation schedule is very interesting compared to a live action. It's a double-edged sword for sure. Like it's one where like you could end up just revising and revising and revising forever. And that's a trap that can happen. But in a film, in both those films, these films, Pinocchio and Marcel, I think you see the advantage of like filmmakers really reacting on this film, especially the improvisation that happened with the recording of the voices and then going back and shooting the live action plate and then allowing that to sort of become part of this process, I think created a unique film. And having the practice of doing the, the, the little YouTube shorts, I think really paid off. You were able to try out material in a manner. And of course, the, the YouTube ones were like really much more lo-fi. They weren't as well animated and they didn't, you know, like they were fine. They were, they were for the medium that they were in or for the, yeah, for the YouTube place that it was in, it was great. But to see it elevated, I thought was great. I, and I, I think the Chodo Bros, if you don't know who they are, they did RoboCop. They, were, they did the stop motion Elf. They did a bunch of stuff in Bram Stoker's Dracula, the Coppola Dracula, American Werewolf from London, and Gremlin. So they've been around since like 1982. So if you're a fan of stop, there's two areas. Like, so you got the Chodo Brothers who are in LA, the Santa Fernando Valley, and then you have like all of Portland. Like Portland is where every single stop motion person lives now, apparently, because Leica's there. Battle Machine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's where they did Pinocchio. So it's you have these little hubs of stop motion and these artisans who really have crafted, who are like, it takes a long time to get good at that. There's not a lot of schools teaching it. So like these people that are the experts have been around doing it for a long time. And I think it shows. I don't know if you saw, but the director of this, he's directing Disney's live action remake of Lilo and Stitch. Well, there you go. Uh, I, I, I guess. <laughs> that's, a, that's a whole other podcast we can have about, like, the Disney, let's make a live-action version of every animated film that's been a hit. Like Pinocchio. <laughs> yeah, I'm not going to touch them. <laughs> Maybe we shouldn't talk about it. Yeah, yeah, let's not. Yeah. Let's move on. Moving on. <laughs> but uh, I was really charmed by this. And it was funny because I was watching a bunch of films over the holiday, and I generally was like, oh, we have to watch these animated films with my family. And this was the one that really seemed to charm my family the most, was Marcel the Shell. I have to confess that it bridged that gap. And I, I appreciate that because they aren't the target audience maybe for an animated film, my family, because they don't have necessarily the, the pension, even though I'm working in the industry. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not bitter about that at all. Well, let me know what you both thought, and Kent, what your family thought of the third film on our list, Puss in Boots, The Last Wish. The credited team is Joel Crawford and Mark Swift. Puss in Boots, The Last Wish. Kent and I both worked at DreamWorks, and so we're we're very familiar with all of the people who worked on this film. I fully enjoyed this movie. I was 100% in 
for this film. I did watch it with my daughter who just turned eight and she did not want anything to do with this film after that wolf showed up. <laughs> oh, um, oh, interesting. Interesting. <laughs> you mean death. I mean, when death showed up, my daughter was out. Spoiler. Um, <laughs> I know. Sorry, everyone. I, I did think that, you know, the design of the wolf and just the red eye, like that is a scary character. But overall, I, I felt like it was a really refreshing film. I think it's the sixth movie that has to do with it in the Shrek universe. The Shrek-verse. The, the Shrek-verse. Shrek Very similar to the Marvel Cinematic Universe. <laughs> yes. Just the look of it. I mean, I, I, I felt these like Spider-verse design vibes. You know, everything was, you know, much more painterly than a lot of the previous Shrek films where it's hyper-realistic and, you know, you see every little detailed hair. But in this one, it's more brush strokes. And when they had these battles, you know, the, the action lines was kind of like more comic-esque, which was yeah. kind of new for DreamWorks right. in this, you know, Shrek verse. So I, I really enjoyed it. And of course, the humor, I thought, was spot on. This film, actually, this year for DreamWorks is an interesting year. I think it's a year that DreamWorks really experimented with their, quote, house style. When you look back at sort of the history of animation, the, the Spider-Verse, Enter the Spider-Verse was a landmark. And it gave permission, I think, to studios like DreamWorks to stop chasing the Disney slash Pixar bar. And I think the technical bar of Pixar and DreamWorks, and we'll get to another Pixar movie later in, in this podcast, is like they do the simulation. They do the physics-based lighting. They do all of the realism and the fur. And like their backgrounds almost look photographic. Like sometimes the only thing that gives away the fact that it's a CG movie or an animated film are the character designs, right? And I think for the longest time, DreamWorks chased that. And it wasn't because the artists didn't want to try different things. I just think that they got guided there by partly because of the tools, partly because of the studio leadership, and partly because that's what was expected. This show really exemplifies that experimentation, like the permission to experiment. And what blew me away most were the action scenes that Camille's talking about. They feel different from the rest of the movie to me. Like they're shot on twos, which when you say we're, we're shot on twos, that means that the character animation only has keyframes on every second frame. So it holds every other frame. And so it creates this steppy feel, but like this almost stop motion y, but steppy feel. And it makes the pose that much stronger. And it feels almost 2D. And the camera work, the head of layout on this was uh, Chris Stover. And it feels as if all of a sudden we become an anime film. You know, you add the lines and the painterly look and the dynamic movement of the camera. It just goes into this place where I'm like, whoa, what's going on with this movie? And it's super engaging. As someone who grew up like liking anime, I was really excited by this film. I just thought it was super interesting. I really liked watching it. I thought the painterly backgrounds were great. I think that that is something that you should look for in this film and compare it to the original Puss in Boots and see how different it looks and feels from that film, even though... Puss, the design is the same, you know, Kitty Southpaw, or Kitty Southpaw, 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 sorry, <laughs> sorry, Sama, is in the back of the movie and is great, and she's a great character. Actually, the, the Goldilocks and the Three Bears, Florence Pugh is Goldilocks. Fantastic. Like, the voice acting is great in this. I have a real soft spot for this because Mark Swift is the producer. He came from PDI, where both Camille and I worked. Swifty. And he has a longtime producer at DreamWorks. And to you know be part of the nomination on this is fantastic. I'm so happy for him and the efforts that's his. Like you feel like there's a producer who's finally recognized for the amount of effort and work he's put into his career. And if you know anything about the history of this film, it labored. It started before I think Universe, NBC Universal took it over. It had two. I mean, I fall starts is maybe too strong a word, but like two different creative teams that started this film, and then this, this. I think this is the third creative team, and the one that finished it is actually this one. They had several different people attempt to crack this movie. It's not a simple movie to make, and I know it seems that way. Oh yeah, well they made Puss in Boots one. That was so many years ago. So why would they make another one? But they've been trying to make this film for I would say almost decades now. And to finish it now and see the result, it was it's really fantastic and fun. It's getting a lot of recognition on the critics. I think it's a dark horse to win. I think it could possibly win the Oscar here. I think critically, it's one of the best reviewed films in DreamWorks history. It's doing great at the box office. It has legs. The key to a successful anime film really is that how long can it sustain its run? And it's sustaining a long run right now at the box office, both here and internationally. I think that shows the appeal of Puss in Boots beyond the domestic borders. Is it's This one's got it for sure. It's just continuing to rise throughout the week's and I think it's it's doing very well from a financial standpoint. You know, good for DreamWorks. As so many of my friends have worked on it and are proud of this film, uh, Jim Ryan, the editor, 
I've worked with him before. He's a longtime editor in the field. He's also in, he's actually an actor in Home Alone, just so everyone knows he's, he was in Home Alone. Yeah, you didn't know that? What? <laughs> Look him up. Look him up. <laughs> I didn't. He's a really great editor and to have him get recognition. So I think for a lot of people at DreamWorks, this is like a, a good moment for them and, and a deserved moment. So I, I feel that that is earned. It looks great. They're very proud of it. I think yeah. for me, the standout is the painterly when they really go full on it and it comes out really in the action stuff. I think they did a great job shooting those sequences. I feel like this has been such a great year for DreamWorks just between this and Bad Guys. Like, yeah. I know Bad Guys wasn't nominated, but Bad Guys is a great film. I fully enjoyed watching it. I, and I think Bad Guys paved the way for this film. That's why this year is extraordinary for DreamWorks is I think they really saw a progression. I remember talking to my friends at DreamWorks and they're like, do you know what movie's really good? And they're like sort of baffled by it. No, 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 Puss in Boots. Puss in Boots. And like, they were, no, 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 really, really. I know you're skeptical, but, you know, like almost like they knew the moment you say the words Puss in Boots, people are like, yeah, right. Okay, we've seen that, been there, you know, like whatever. But give this movie a chance if you haven't. Like really go see it. Yeah. I think it's really something that's extraordinary, like for them as a studio. But I want to explore that a little deeper about the, the change in styles. And you guys have both talked about it. Clearly, when I was watching it, I noticed, again, the action sequences are different. And I hadn't made the connection, but Camille, you brought up uh, Into the Spider-Verse, and now I'm seeing that sort of approach. But the non-action stuff, the general dialogue, seems to be in a much more traditional style. Yeah. And I feel on some level that the, the shift was a little disconcerting. I, I loved the style of Into the Spider-Verse, but I'm wondering if they didn't really have the courage of their convictions to push the entire film in a new direction. And I found that the shift in some ways made it a little harder for me to follow. And I found myself questioning the, the change more than necessarily really getting into the action because then we'd go back. And so then the next action sequence, again, I'm adjusting how I view it. And I think that hurts the film a little bit. It hurt it for me at least. That's interesting. It's you're not the first person to tell me that, to be frank. Like I think that that is something that is an interesting comment and an observation. Clearly, no one wants to be taken out of the movie. So in that way, you know, you as an audience member, it was it worked against it. I don't know enough about the technical aspect. I wasn't at DreamWorks when they made this. I would argue that like that style, the painterly style, is very hard to achieve and be consistent about. So I could see there being a case not knowing that maybe that was a choice of like, well, we're dipping our toe in. We do, maybe we can't go fully into that, you know, because of pipeline limitations or, or technical limitations or even time. Like, you know, you can do this other thing. Also, it has to relate to the other films. Like it can't just all of a sudden change and be different. And if you look at the new characters versus the old characters, for example, Puss in Boots versus, do you remember the name of the little dog? or Perito. Perito. Like if you look at Perito's fur versus Puss in Boots' fur, there literally are like little brushstrokes on the fur of Perito that are not on Puss in Boots. Sometimes you have this thing where you want to make sure you pay attention to making sure the character relates to the previous film, but then you can take more risks maybe with the newer characters. I'm not saying that's what happened. I, I don't know enough behind the scenes to know about that. They definitely were pushing it. Yeah. You know? They definitely were pushing the style. Yeah. Spider-Verse is interesting because it changes all the time. Like it does. For me, like you see almost every scene sequence has a slightly different variation. But I think that's part of the kinetic energy of that film. And it helps make it feel the way it does. And it's successful in that way. And maybe for you as an audience member, Skid, that when you saw it, it popped you out. And, and in some ways, that maybe that's unsuccessful. I was enthralled by it. I just thought it was super fascinating. And part of me is, is the fan of animation to see it. Like, I just like seeing that kind of stuff, something different. But at the same time, like, it shouldn't take you out of the movie. And so, like, in that way, maybe it's not as successful. We could argue about that. But uh, I, I loved it. I was, like, super into it. No, that's so funny. I, I, and, I, and I feel like I had the same feeling as Kent, right? Like, when, when those scenes came up, I was like, oh, man, it's different. I love it. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I mean, I, if, if we're just coming from the world of animation, we're watching things with different eyes, you know? Right. I didn't ask my family about it. I, I forced my family to watch this movie because I was like, oh, my friends are going to watch it over, over the holiday. We watched it. And Skid, to your question, I would say my family was more of a fan of Marcel than of Puss in Boots. Like that's their feeling about it, you know, as far as a lay person watching the film. I think that part of the problem for them, they felt it took a little long to get going. The beginning is it takes a while for the film, the picture to get its legs. 
there's this big dance number, you know, sort of almost a musical number in the beginning, and then the, the big fight in the giants before we actually get to the core of the story of like evading death and, and the fear of death being the thing that motivates Puss. It takes a while to get there. So I think that was one of their criticisms. They just felt a long take a long time to get going, which I thought was an interesting observation. You know, we talk about this in our last podcast about visual effects. Sometimes you're watching a movie with the hat of the film goer, just a regular film. Sometimes you're watching it as a crash person, and it's hard to like disengage each aspect of it and to go fully into one or the other. One of the things I read about that was fascinating is, is how much, I guess, psychologists or therapists like the depiction of the panic attack. Yes. And I think that's something that from an emotional standpoint, I would ask the, the listeners here to watch for is the depiction of the panic attack about how true that is to how people feel when suffering a panic attack. And I think that's an, a hard thing to do is to take something very, an emotional reality and to depict it in an animated sense and it makes somebody feel something like feel like, oh, that's what it feels like for me. And I think it was super successful. Yeah. And really shifts Puss's perspective on life. That was really, you know, an interesting thing that they that they added in there. Because if he didn't have some kind of really serious thing affecting him, I don't know if his character shift would have been as believable. And I wonder, you know, what's coming next? Because now they go visit their friends and far, far away. Oh, man, I smell Shrek 5 <laughs> coming around the corner. <laughs> Shrek's are coming back. <laughs> This one doing as well as it is. I'm sure there is uh, another movie uh, coming through. We'll have to see what they do with it. Until then, we'll move on to the fourth movie on our list, The Sea Beast. And the credited team is Chris Williams and Jed Schlanger. So Jed is another DreamWorks alum. So we always, I'll, I'll fully have show my bias. I love my DreamWorks alum. I got to work with Jed as the boss baby came in and really helped land that plane, so to speak. He's a great producer. He's a great animation producer, great guy. Sea Beast is amazing to me. And I remember talking to some of my friends who worked on it and saying, wow, that film looks expensive. Like, I'm impressed about the scope and scale of that film. If you want to see a movie that's not done at Pixar or Disney, that is way expensive in terms of like, they spent a lot of money to make that thing look great, is Sea Beast. And that Sony was the vendor on that. The water simulation is extraordinary. And some people will say, oh, well, we figured out water. You saw Titanic. I'm like, this is at a whole other level. The interaction with the giant sea beasts and the ships is absolutely phenomenal. And it's like so well done. And once you're like saying, we're going to make a movie on the ocean for most of the movie, like 70% of the movie takes place on the ocean. Like it's a tough film to shoot. It's going to be expensive. There's no lock. There are going to not be lock offs. You're going to be in motion all the time. The characters have to have weight and shifting weight all the time. That's an animation lift. There's the simulation of anytime you see water, that's simulated. So that's an effects lift there. I got the tip of the hat to Damon O'Baron, longtime DreamWorks head of layout for the cinematography on this film. It's extraordinary. And like to get the Sea Beast to feel large, you're shooting overcranked in some way to make them feel bigger but at the same time it's exciting so that, that's the thing about a large moving object like a sea beast like you're trying to make it feel big but you don't want it to be boring and take forever to make their turns and it reminded me a lot of Master and Commander I loved Master and Commander I don't care what anyone says that movie's awesome so you can see <laughs> Master it's a live action movie see Master Commander so like that's a great film and part of what makes these two films and what connects them is their attention to detail in the seafaring well it's the same boat did you know they went to that boat no it's the same boat <laughs> well i mean they, they studied that boat like they visited that boat and like the the master and commander boat okay so like this all makes sense because the authenticity in the film is extraordinary and i, I don't know anything about boats so let's let me, let me get that out there right now i did speak to a bunch of people about who worked on it they had consultants come in and talk about like how do we make the ship turn what are the maneuvers you have to do? What ropes do you pull on? And what people don't realize is that when you model the boat, the ship, even if you model an accurate ship, you have to rig it, meaning you have to make things move in a certain way so that the sails move. And you have to know which sails move when to basically articulate a turn. And there's a moment where they do, I think it's called a crossing the TE in order to get broadside with the CBs to like harpoon it. And they paid attention to all of the like, what are the things you have to do in order? What are the steps you have to take to do it? And while you don't have to be an expert to know it's right, you feel it. And I think that's the extraordinary thing about filmmaking in general, whether it's a live action film or an animated film, is that when people pay attention to the details, you don't know it, you just feel it. And I think in this film, you really feel the attention to detail. And I was super impressed by it. Like, this could easily have been like a paint by numbers seafaring movie, but it felt 
big and it felt right. And I was really impressed with the filmmaking on here. It's extraordinarily well done. I worked on a giant monster movie, this Rumble movie. This to me, like I can't, Damon O'Baron blows me away. That's why he was called the godfather of layout at Dreamers because he's so good. And I think what he did here with the cinematography, it's even in some of the reviews I saw it called out is extraordinary. Well, it's that sense of scale, right? Like it's so challenging to really capture that giant sea beast, this little girl, you know, and really understand and feel the the hugeness of that creature. And, and uh, but I, I wanted to go back to just the ropes. I, I, <laughs> let's, well, let's talk about ropes. Let's talk about ropes. Let's talk about ropes, Kent. <laughs> um, you know, on that ship, I think there are 5,000 or so ropes that connect and yes they they work you know <laughs> and just the details of, of being able to command a ship thinking about the wind and the sail and just all those different elements that go into creating a shot in this film because there's a, a hundreds of them on that boat on the water it's unbelievable yeah and by the way and the expensive part as you were talking about that was like oh my gosh like the producers must have just had a heart attack oh. like jed must have had a heart attack jed jed, jed um, probably lost like you know four <laughs> years of his life working on that film like, <laughs> I, by the way this was done during the pandemic it started in the office oh, and yeah. went to the pandemic and then so they had to figure out their whole we talked about this last year but it's still like this is a carryover of that phenomenon like they had to figure out how to finish this movie at home again no easy feat yeah. And Chris Williams left Disney after 25 years to come to Netflix and, and make this. It was a real passion project. You know, the thing about when you hear about directors, it's great when you hear they're great guys. So I know a few people that worked on this film. And one of them, Stephanie Kider, big shout out to Stephanie Kider, Extreme Merker, now on Turtles, doing a great job. Um, <laughs> she was saying that, that one thing she could say about Chris was he was the hardest working person on the show. She said this guy came in every day, had done the homework. She said he was late to only one meeting, and he was extremely apologetic to everyone in that meeting when he was late. And I don't know if I've ever worked on a film where the director was on time to every meeting. And like that's extraordinary. Like that's the kind of – I just feel that there's there should be something said about that. I have never met Chris. I don't know anything about him. But when I hear that, I'm impressed. I think that kind of behavior should be rewarded, and I think it shows in this film and the care in this movie. I'm working with him now. So we'll see what's next. <laughs> the last film on our list is Turning Red, and the credited team is Domi Shi and Lindsay Collin. So here we go, Turning Red, another Pixar film nominated. Disney and Pixar have kind of dominated <laughs> this category. A little. <laughs> uh, a, a, a little for the past, you know, however many years it's existed as a category. <laughs> and and Turning Red is, it's, it's Domi Shi's, you know, her feature directorial debut. She had previously directed the short film Bow at Pixar. And I heard, you know, the way she pitched it was like, this is a like magical puberty uh, film, which is kind <laughs> of like, and I, I really enjoyed this film. I thought it was a really different film for Pixar. I mean, it's definitely, you know, as a, as a former teenage girl, I can absolutely identify with just the the you know their bonkers hormones just jumping around their bodies and being obsessed with the boy band and the guy who works in the convenience store and their little drawing and just all those feelings and so, and so it was really nice to see Domi really getting to tell her story because I know she grew up in Toronto and so mm -hmm. you know Canada Toronto are, are a huge part of this film you know having this red panda emerge <laughs> you know as a sign of her kind of going through puberty it's hilarious, but it's also really, really poignant and, and kind of like Pinocchio. It's almost like a story where the mother has to learn how to mother her daughter in a way, which is kind of a, a similar theme because she comes to accept that uh, she's not going to imprison her, her panda. <laughs> her inner panda. Her inner panda. I read that she described it when she was pitching it as an Asian tween fever dream which I think is, is an appropriate description of it. I think it's a very un-Pixar movie in a lot of yeah. ways. Like I, I was really surprised by this movie, by some of the choices in this movie, because it is so un-Pixar. I think the boy band particularly, and the emphasis on the boy band, I thought was, wow, we're really going to do this. We're really going to have, oh, no, we're going to a concert. Oh, wait a minute. They're performing like Backstreet Boys or NSYNC. I know it's I'm, I'm really like uh, dating myself. That's what the boy bands I know. Not, I'm not saying any K-pop bands. I'm saying, you know. <laughs> well, it's supposed to be in the early 2000s. So. I get it. I get it. But like, 
it's one of those things where like usually Pixar is a little bit more timeless in its choices like of like, oh, you're not supposed to really understand what time this is happening. But this is very specific and the specificity is different. And it was for me like, whoa, OK, so we're going to do this. It took me a second to sort of get my bearings on on that specificity of some of those things. I think that the editing style also, it's a lot more fast cutting and the other Pixar films that I'm used to seeing. So I think they took a lot of risks here. You can see the evolution of like for me, the character designs from Luca. Like you can definitely see the influence of Luca to this one. The mouth shapes. Yeah, the mouth is like we talked about this in our last year's podcast. The mouth shapes in Luca, and I think you see them here, right? So here's a technology or like a method or a technique. Maybe technology is the wrong word. It's a combination of all the above that created this ability to create these really round mouths, which are heavily influenced by Miyazaki, who has influenced this filmmaker Domi Shi, and now it's used in this film. So she describes her animation pedigree or growing yeah, we always talk about the films that influenced us and she says it was you know miyazaki warner brothers and disney and if i say that you watch this film you see all of that in this film you see those influences whereas i think a lot of the other films whether it's a disney film or a pixar you see the classic disney influence and i think this is definitely a multitude of different influences on the animation style and character design and like i said the editing of the film like it's all sort of there in that way that is very different from what pixar normally or has done in the past so and she's the you know oscar winner for her short bow and so to see the what she comes up with in this is it heralds the the next generation of pixar filmmaker in a lot of ways like here in this in this one and it, it and I think it does – one of the things that's successful about it is the fact that it is autobiographical. We talk a little bit in the filmmaking world of like having to have a personal connection to the film in order to add to that or contribute to it in some way. And I think this feels very personal to her. You can sense that this is this was she was she was like you know like she had not maybe she did have a red pen that we don't know about but like you know like you get the the sense that that this was her absolutely and I and I think just. I don't know, you know, I mean, teenage girls, they don't get, uh, I feel like not many films are made about these kind of like intelligent teenage girls who are going through something. And so it was really beautiful to see that on screen for me. I don't know if I've ever seen an animated film about this particular subject ever. Yeah. And they weren't like mean girls or anything like that. Like they were just your average, you know, this is just a story about a family and these teen girls that I think any any teen girl could, could identify with. So I, I really enjoyed that. And I think the, the idea of the first generation immigrant coming to the country you know, and trying trying to resolve your immigrant, you know, your where you came from along with the new country you're in and the pull of that first generation that's born in this country and trying to figure, find your way and navigating between the two is something I definitely related to in terms of my own personal personal upbringing. There is something I think universal about the immigrant story that like is especially in the United States for sure, um, but obviously this is in Canada, but I think that story is a very universal story of trying to resolve where you came from with where you are. And I, I think that's in the DNA of the film that it, it feels very authentic also. The shout out, Billie Eilish wrote the songs with Phineas her brother, just so everyone knows. So if you're a Billie Eilish fan, she's the one who wrote the song. So like, there get you the go. soundtrack. <laughs> so of course, of course, Pixar gets Billie Eilish, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. well, of course. I mean, you, just, you pick up the phone and they show yeah. up. Yeah, you're like, you're like, oh yeah, we're Pixar. You, you're going to come do this, and I'm sure it was like, yes. And they say yes. <laughs> <laughs> but I think it's, it's a refreshing, uh, different kind of film for Pixar. This is an interesting story about like just it being on streaming. So for the last couple of years, the Pixar movies have been released on streaming, and there's been much debate online in the online world, which we don't really care too much about, except for the podcasts online, so we care about it, um, is that has the releasing of Pixar movies on streaming when not going to the theater hurt the brand? And while this is not relevant to this film, it's a question because their other film this year, Lightyear, was released in theaters and did not receive the box office it normally does. There was some criticism about that film, and it was there was some talk about that. So it's it's an interesting side debate that is something that was talked about as far as like how would this have done in a theater release? Would this film have made a good amount of money like in the past? The box office is very different now because of the pandemic, but it's still a question of like has Disney hurt the Pixar brand by doing the release schedule that they have? Yeah, and we'll see. You know, now that we're kind of you know we're back in the theaters and studios are not 
hesitating to release at this point. Yeah. Um, it'll be interesting to see kind of the rest of this year, how the box office is. Yeah. It's part of the business that you have to sort of figure out, figure out as far as like that goes. But I think it's a great, I think it's a really good film. I, I commend Domini Shi, the next generation of Pixar filmmaker. She's in good company. This is a strong slate of films this year. I, an embarrassment of riches almost. With even what struck me as odd about Puss, I still enjoyed the film. And again, all of these films, I, I think it's going to be a tough one. I think it's a tough choice for Academy voters this year. People like to say, well, the Disney one wins or the Pixar one wins, but I don't think it's a shoe in for anybody to win. I think the early momentum has clearly been for Pinocchio, but you never know when you get to the Oscar time. Like, And Disney's great at ramping up the PR machine as it gets closer. I think that you know, Turning Red has a good shot at I think Puss in Boots has a shot. Puss in at, Boots has legs right now. You know, it's on everybody's mind. I've seen a lot of articles about Puss in Boots, about how good a film that is. And so I think that you'd have to really consider Pinocchio, Puss in Boots, and Turning Red as the front runners. Like somewhere there, there were some other three. I mean, like Sea Beast is probably the hardest pull out of the bunch if you're doing your Oscar voting, your betting vote. But like, it doesn't mean it couldn't win. And certainly Marcel the Shell is a dark horse as well. Like I, it's a good year for animated films to me. Like there's a good diversity in types of films and content. Were there any other 2022 films that uh, you want to give a shout out? Now and again, with these films, no spoilers, but things that <laughs> didn't make this list, but you think are, are worth people finding. I want to just give a shout out uh, to My Father's Dragon uh, from Cartoon Saloon um, based on the, the children's book. It's beautiful. You know, and it's in, in that kind of cartoon saloon style and just really, really enjoyed that. So bummed out that it didn't get nominated and didn't get more recognition because I think it's a really beautifully done 2D animated film. Uh, that is one thing in this year. There are no uh, 2D animated films uh, represented. Uh, and the other one selfishly missing is Intergalactic. Uh, oh. from from Netflix, but only because I worked on it. So, <laughs> <laughs> shout out, shout out, shout out, shout out to Netflix home team, home team for you. Home team. Uh, I just thought it was really beautiful and different, and I'm a fan of you know just that animation is is film and and just cracking open the door to to look at different kinds of projects uh, that are made in this medium. I'll give a shout out to the other DreamWorks film this year, The Bad Guys. I th I think that film in many ways, paved the way for Puss. I, I think if you like a heist film, it's fun as a heist film. It has Sam Rockwell's voice with it. Come on, everyone loves Sam Rockwell. I mean, come on, <laughs> that guy's great. It's it's a fun film. And I think in many ways, you know, the thing, your criticism uh, skid you had about Puss in Boots, I think Bad Guys is very cohesive in its look. It's not as painterly and as anime style as Puss gets, but it has its own style. That is not the DreamWorks quote house style or the past house style. I don't. I think nowadays you would say that they're reaching far beyond that mm -hmm. to other things, depending on what the film is. And I applaud that. And I like to applaud the filmmakers on on Bad Guys. I really enjoyed it. I thought it was a fun movie. I really liked that film. I did too. I thought it was like Ocean's Eleven. There's a lot of sort of like how do they do it kind of thing. How do you pull off the heist? And uh, those are really fun scenes. Well, listeners, this is a good year for animated films. I don't think you can go wrong with any of these. On that note, we're going to call it a wrap. So much fun having you guys on the show. Thanks so much. Thank Thanks you. Thanks for having us. It's great to have you on with Camille Laganza. So <laughs> good awesome. to be with Ken Secchi again. He's awesome. Aw, miss you, buddy. Miss you too. Listeners, I always appreciate your feedback. You'll find my contact info at our website, below the line, one word, dot biz. That's B-I-Z. Thanks to Curtis Five for our music and John Juan for our logo. The logo is available on t-shirts, mugs, and stickers at redbubble.com. To all of our listeners, I appreciate you. Please rate us wherever you get your podcasts and tell your friends. Thanks again from Below the Line. Quick question. Can you guys hear noise on my side? I'm getting it loud, but if it's not getting picked up in the mic... <laughs> Yay, blanket fort. Okay. Yeah, not, <laughs> not hearing it. Okay, yeah, your blanket fort great. is strong. strong. <laughs> I, love, I love a good blanket fort sound studio. <laughs>